My favorite book about history and probably one of my favorite books ever is a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me by an author named James W. Lowen. I never really liked studying history in school until about my junior year of high school when I saw this book sitting on my teacher's shelf. He was a history teacher, but he wasn't my history teacher. I had him for a psychology class and I was intrigued by the title. Here's a teacher and his book is called Lies My Teacher Told Me. So I asked him what it was about and he just let me borrow it and told me to read it. And it's a book written by this college professor who kind of wanted to answer two questions. One, why did the students that came to his college class not like history? And two, why did they not know anything about history? So he does this deep dive on how history is taught in the United States, why it's taught so badly, and kind of all the mistakes that are made. It's a really fascinating book. I really recommend it. But there's one chapter in the book I think about a lot in particular when it comes to my own work, and it's a chapter called Down the Memory Hole. And it's an examination of how in history we often neglect to study the recent past. Things that happened in the last few years tend to go down the memory hole. And I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of my videos and with this podcast. I know a lot about music history, and I know basically nothing about what it's like to actually be a musician today. Even what it's like to be a musician in the last 10 years. The music business has changed so much during my lifetime, it continues to evolve. And so today I wanted to sit down with three current artists and get their perspectives on what it's like. What it's like to be a musician in 2023 and how they define success in today's very different musical world. The first story is about a singer-songwriter named Deanna Bellos, who goes by the name Sincere Engineer. She started off as a solo project that's now morphed into a band, and we talk about what it's like to sign to a bigger indie label, what it's like to record, and what it's like to tour in 2023. Next, I sat down with a songwriter out of Nashville named Melody Walker. Melody was the lead singer of a popular band called Front Country, and now is a singer and songwriter who's written songs that have appeared on Grammy-winning albums. We talk about what it's like to be a songwriter in Nashville today, and also what it's like to be a rebel in the world of Americana music. And finally, I spoke with one of my current favorite rappers, Alfred Banks. We talk about what it's like to be a rapper today, and how Alfred had to make things happen for himself, and redefine what success means for him. On today's episode, three stories of modern musicians. I'm Patrick Hicks, and this is Good Measure. What keeps us together across town, across space? The fragile moments that could as well be lost, but we hold on. Deanna Bellos didn't start writing songs until she was 20. Before that, her dream had been to be a dentist. Or at least that's what she thought her dream was. At some point she realized that deep down it really wasn't what she wanted. And then she discovered that a lot of people wanted to hear the songs that she had written in her mother's car instead of studying in college. Deanna's musical hero was a guy named Brendan Kelly, the singer of the Chicago punk band The Lawrence Arms. Through going to Lawrence Arms shows and other punk shows in Chicago, Deanna met Toby Jegg, who was a friend of Brendan Kelly's and had put out some of Kelly's music through his label called Red Scare. Toby heard some music that Deanna had put up on her Instagram profile and encouraged her to play a show with some of the songs that she'd written. On her very first show, she played with Brendan Kelly. She named her musical project after a Brendan Kelly quote and called herself Sincere Engineer. Since that first show, Sincere Engineer has evolved into a full band and has released two acclaimed records and just finished recording their third. Here is my conversation with Sincere Engineer's Deanna Bellows. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me. I'm of a course. huge fan. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, this is very exciting. 
But yeah, so basically doing this podcast now, it's like a music history podcast. And I know a lot about music history and mm. nothing about the way current music business is. So sure. what is it like to be in a modern band? No yeah. idea. Uh, I mean, I want to talk to you about like your background and, you know, regular sure. interview questions, but then maybe focus on music business type stuff. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I'll do my best. I, uh, I'm kind of <laughs> learning as I go also, but, you know. <laughs> Good. Cool. We can learn together. Cool. Okay. So first question is Sincere Engineer. That's like your solo project, but now it's also a band. So do you consider yourself a band or do you consider yourself a solo project? Um, they both, I guess it depends on the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, mostly a band at this point, but like that phrase is like synonymous with my name now. So it's like, right. you know, whatever the day calls for. <laughs> so it is evolving into. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Band too. I yeah. I mean, I, I write all the songs and I started solo in like 2015 and got a band two years later. So it's definitely yeah. like. A component of it for sure <laughs> tell me a little bit about like growing up like did you have musical parents did they play music in the house like when did music first enter the picture for you they my parents didn't really play actively uh my mom like can play piano but okay she doesn't i don't know just like <laughs> it being in the car with my parents is like kind of where i got like really into music and stuff and i like loved bands when i was a kid like going to show or, i don't know i started going to shows when i was like in middle school like 12 13 yeah. and that's where i found like Alkaline Trio, the Lawrence Arms, all the bands that like Brennan Kelly was in and stuff. And that's kind of where like the, you know, my, a lot of my inspiration comes from like Chicago bands like that. But I grew up on like oldies and uh, I worked in a dental office when I was like 14 to like 17. So I like heard a lot of like adult contemporary and like oldies and stuff. <laughs> uh, gotcha. Yeah. Radio I, hits and stuff. <laughs> sure. I, I remember an interview once where you were talking about your, like your dad's CDs in the the six CD changer and it was like yeah, totally. fish and wallflowers and the doors. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That, that happened. But your parents never like played in bands or no, anything no. like that. You said you worked in a dental office. I know that's a big part of your story. Like you wanted to be a dentist. When did that come up? Was it because of working in that office or did you already, that was already um, your dream? I already wanted to, my godmother is a hygienist and like, she got me like a job there. And I, I did that before like going to college and stuff. And I did want to be a dentist and I didn't get into dental school. And part of that was because I wasn't like studying when I should have been. I was like playing guitar and stuff. And that's where like the less interested I got in that, the more interested I got in music and stuff. So I just got a yeah. regular biology degree and called it a day. <laughs> you talked about instead of being classroom in your mom's car writing songs. Yeah. Well, I went to class, but I didn't study when I got home. <laughs> did you write the song with a guitar? Yeah. Yeah, so you yeah. just had the guitar in the car. Mm -hmm. I would just, because it would be like five, six in the morning from the day before or like the night before. So I like, I was in the car in the garage. So like my parents wouldn't like wake up. <laughs> ah, so like you. yelling a lot. <laughs> what, uh, do you remember the first song that you wrote? Yeah, <laughs> I do remember it. <laughs> it. It won't ever see the light of day. <laughs> I mean, nobody's first song was good. I don't think what... I mean, I can't. I have it somewhere. I can't muster yeah. it up at the moment. Uh, it wasn't good, though. No, no, no. What was the first song you wrote that was like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. I could write a song. Um, I think Shattering, probably. That record, it was like, that was a song that I had wrote like years before it, I think.
that you're like 20 writing your first songs in the mom's car 2014 2013 2014 and then the band yeah. like i played my first show in 2015 let me get this part straight so you didn't play your first show until somebody from the label red scare like knew that you had songs yeah and he was like i'll put you on a show yeah he was like he was like i you know the same people keep playing the same shows do you want to some new blood is what he called it and like he he followed me on instagram i met, I met him when i was like pretty young because i would go to all these shows and like be there yeah. with my mom and or alone and he was like yeah you wanna you wanna play the show it's like you can play for like 15 minutes open uh it was like a five band bill so it, it was kind of more of a favor to me i think than here i don't know it was amazing i got to open for brennan kelly he's my hero <laughs> so right. the fact that that was my first show is like insane and I like still thank Toby every day for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's so crazy. How did you first hear the Lawrence Arms? I know you said like you were just going to shows and stuff, but yeah. Well, how did you know to go to that show? I think one of their record covers has Matt Skiba on the front in like the photo strip thing, and I Trio was like my favorite or is my favorite band, and I yeah. was like, oh, he's on this, it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> and then like they became my favorite band. <laughs> how did you get into Alkaline Trio then? I, I had like some friends in middle school. Uh, warp tour stuff you know they were just like the you know the chicago band the, the fact that they were from here like intrigued me more than others so uh how, so how did this person know that you wrote songs did you post them on your instagram yeah yeah i would do like little clips like videos they're still up those they, that's probably the furthest back right. you can see they're not good either <laughs> um <laughs> i don't know he's like you do you have like a few songs you could play like just go ahead how many songs did you have for the first show five i think they were all like under two minutes, so it was a quick punk set. <laughs> yeah. What did what was the crowd reaction? Was it like uh, it was like injured? just my friends, so it was good. Uh, <laughs> I practiced like a crazy amount, so it was like I was like ready to go and stuff. But I don't think I play any of the songs now that I played that night. Did it feel like when you played the first show, like oh, this is this is what I want to be doing now? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. I was like, oh, that was fun, and then like. The uh, the promoter at that show had like a connection to like the comedy scene and they needed a musical guest for this thing they were doing. And he asked me to do that. And then I did. And then it started snowballing when people were like asking me to do more. But I was like still in the height of like going to school. And like that was still like a like a totally in my mind, an option that I like was supposed to be still doing. You know what I mean? But like, every, like, I don't know, it was like, it was cool. It was to, like, you know, to have that like support from people to be like, oh, we like want you to do this. And then because I did a lot of stuff with like the comedy scene, I would have like that whole group of people like supporting me. It wasn't just like the Chicago music scenes, like super like supportive of everyone. And there's shows every night. There's a lot of opportunity. But then to also have that other side. And it was like less competition because there'd be nine comedians and one musical guest. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it was like, oh. Everyone's going to remember that because it was the most different thing. I definitely like look back and like kind of equate some of the the quick growth to that as well. Did you ever think like, oh, maybe I should be a, a comedic singer? Do you no. like comedy songs? <laughs> no, no, I never thought that. I do love like comedians a lot. Like Norm MacDonald is one of my heroes also. I don't have the confidence or I'm not that funny. So <laughs> I would never. <laughs> How did the first... How did it come about like, okay, I was doing these shows. I didn't really know what I was doing. I fell into this. Now I'm making a record. And the first record mm. is on Red Scare, right? Yep. Yeah, so yeah. how did it happen where they were like, okay, now we want you to record an album? 
Well, the cool thing about Toby was, like, it was very, like, do whatever you want. And he didn't sign me right away either. So, like, I played um, just another show and uh, somebody in the crowd named Matt Jordan was like, I, I record bands. I'd, like, love to work with you. And I didn't think anything of it. And then, like, somebody told me, like, like, you know, like his resume, he's like, you got to keep that number. <laughs> so I wrote yes. like 12 songs and it was like a year later or something. I like I didn't want to waste his time and like not have a full record. And he became he's like one of my best friends now. He he produced everything up until this last record. But that first record is just me and him and Kyle and my band played bass on it. We kind of just made it in our free time. It took like a year because it was just like random Saturdays or like a couple hours after work. Um, and then it was done and Toby was like, Oh, can I, can I hear it? <laughs> and, and he was like, uh, you, do you want me to put this out? And I was like, uh, that's crazy. Sure. And then <laughs> it, it turned into like, like nobody knew it was going to be like, like people were going to like it. He just did that to me as like a favor because right. we're friends. And it, again, thank him every day for it. <laughs> so you recorded the whole album, not knowing who was going to put it out. It was just, yeah, it was just for fun. Self-releasing it or? I don't know if I even thought that far. It's just like, I have 12 songs and this guy wanted to help me record them. It's like, yeah. Like before that, I had like a, like an EP that I recorded on my phone out on Bandcamp. If nobody put it out, I probably would have just threw it up on there. I wasn't like looking to, it was just fun. I don't know. I like, I fell into like the like, playing like a show once, at least once a week down, you know, in, in the city. It was just like, it became my hobby very quick. And like, I loved the bands I was playing with and the, like opportunities to play with friends was fun. And then Matt also helped you put like the band together that. Yeah. Still now, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. He, I mean, he's like the fifth member of our band. Uh, the, everybody in my band now who are my best friends, I did not know them until I met Matt. <laughs> it's like, right. it's so crazy. But yeah, those were like his friends. And he was like, like assembling this team. Cause he was like, you're going to have, you know, these songs are going to be cool live. You got to play it live. Yeah. And I was like, I don't have a band. And he was like, don't worry. I got you. <laughs> I thank him every day also for like everything he's done for me. They put out the first record and then does it sell? Like, does, does he say like, Deanna, actually like a ton of people are listening to your record or? I, I can't even remember. I mean, yeah, it sold enough. I don't like more than like the band camp thing I put on the two years prior. Um, I, it's not like their best seller by any means. <laughs> um, but I mean, if it was just he was doing it as a favor. Right. Was, it, it definitely. Like, oh, actually, people really like this. Yeah, no, that that happened for sure. He was like, I, I can't remember the text. It was something like, you know, surprise, surprise, like this thing that was like supposed to be just for fun, like really blew all of our expectations out of the water or something like that. I don't know. And that, that that's kind of when I was like, oh, maybe I should like write another one. <laughs> but then that <laughs> took forever. And then the pandemic happened too. And it was a whole thing. But I definitely like timeline wise, like milked that one for as long as possible because I didn't know what I was doing. And like, I think I, I did a tour with the Lawrence Arms, which was amazing. Toby got me on that too. Uh, but I did it solo, even though the full band record came out like a month prior to that tour. And it just... I had a full-time job. I, we all still have full-time jobs, so it's still, like, you know. But it was, like, really hard to find time to, like, write a whole new record, tour when I could get off of work, and still work a ton, and all that. Sure. And time goes by so fast, as it is. <laughs> Do you hate having to go into work? Being like, I should be on stage right now? Being, like, worshipped no, no, by no. fans? <laughs> no, I, like, uh, I, like, I took some time off. I think I'm going to go back. I, I have been going back, like, just a little bit here and there, but I think I'm going to, like, 
get it back full time. I definitely need that like normal routine. I didn't know until taking some time off that I realized that like I don't do well with downtime. So like it just like I like having those two channels in my life where it's like this is my time to do this and like sing on stage and you know have fun with that. And then I also like having a job <laughs> and a steady paycheck. <laughs> and yeah, insurance. Okay. Well, so. that's true. Yeah. So with the, what happens with the second record, you put it out on Hopeless Records. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen that you signed with them? They reached out and like were interested in like where I was at. I think I probably teased that I was like writing new songs and stuff. And that whole like signing on with them took nine months or something. Like I like I got a manager and stuff because it was like sort of like gearing up. It's like it's not just my friend anymore. There's like right, you know, yeah. contracts Real involved business. now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh that took some time and at this point we're talking like 2019 or something pretty much had all the songs written and then the pandemic happened and like we were signed and we put out like we recorded it and then i think we put out a song and then the record came out like a year later or something we like put out a song to announce the uh the signing with them and then we're just like buying time because nobody knew if shows would ever come back you know what i mean right so they found you you weren't like i'm gonna try to find a a correct this correct i didn't even consider like it, it there's such a huge label i didn't even yeah it wasn't like shopping like the <laughs> these huge labels hoping <laughs> but i mean i'm super grateful they found me it's it was it's crazy would have went with toby again for the second one right um, how did he feel about you signing with hopeless was he happy for oh, you he, and yeah he was super supportive he's like i mean he'll even tell like he's said it in interviews like his his it's like a DIY label he runs out of his apartment. Like he knows right. if like if bands get an opportunity that's bigger, like go take it, you know? So. so now you're on this bigger label, you go to record the second album. Do they have like input? Do they say anything about the songs? No, like, like, in my case, yeah, they, uh, I think they definitely have like input on like which singles are, or which singles come out and stuff like that. We did not like, you know, show them like every couple of days, like what was happening. I don't, I don't know, like personally, like, or like what other bands have or, you know, but they, it's like, go make a record and then we're going to put it out. That's, that's my understanding of it. (laughs) second record comes out i love this record it, this is the, like, the first one i heard and it's just like amazing does it Thank feel you. like things are like snowballing like you're getting more fans you're getting bigger shows yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah it's definitely surreal i think like like part of what i was saying with having the like two lives sort of deal like where i just go back to work and abnormal that's sort of like those shows and stuff are like a party to me it's like it's still like super fun and like i don't know i like i find it hard to like grasp like oh like the rock star thing you know (laughs) because i still have like i'm still trying to like get up and go to work the next day (laughs) right for sure Um, but like you know it it is surreal i like i i I don't know it's like hard to explain like like i said i I did this for fun like toby was nice enough to put out my record and then like hopeless found me etc so tell me about you just recorded a new album. You're done mm-hmm. recording the whole thing? Yeah, which is like, as I mentioned, the first two records took like years <laughs> to record because we were just doing it for fun. This was like the 
you get there and two weeks later the record's done that's like insane to me <laughs> uh but yeah it's done I, if you like our band it'll be your favorite of our records i think and why did you decide you went with a new producer for this record right why did you decide to uh do something new change it up so matt had a baby and he's like very busy <laughs> uh i would have loved to have him even for one we had like the opportunity to, to work with a bigger producer and i picked mike sapone because of his like all the records he's worked on are crazy he's super awesome i would have like loved to work with matt again but he like he even said like you know go if you have that opportunity go for it i i yeah it didn't work the timing didn't work out but he could have like come and hung out with us like we're still he wasn't mad or anything so you just did a european tour last summer opening mm -hmm. for uh menzingers yeah. it was that your first time going to europe yes <laughs> i mean that's pretty awesome like... oh it was insane <laughs> Yeah, they, the Menzingers are really, really good people and uh, their whole crew is amazing. And the fact that, like, yeah, we're very grateful that they gave us that opportunity to, like, you know, go there with a band that's been there a bunch. And, like, the shows were amazing. It, it was like a cool first tour over there for sure. It was so fun. <laughs> did they pick you? Like, is that yeah. like a label thing or they were just like, we like Sincere Engineer, you want to come open for us? I'm pretty sure they picked us. Uh, we had done a full U.S. tour with them earlier that year, in, back in April. Yeah. So, yeah, it was like the year of us being on tour with Menzingers, basically. We did six weeks here and then three weeks in Europe. It was awesome. <laughs> Do you yeah. lose money doing a tour like that as the opener? Do you break even? Like, what are the, the financials um, of touring Europe as the opening band? Oh, Europe, you lose money. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, here... Um, that's not always the case, but everything is so expensive right now. It's like, yeah, you're very lucky to break even, um, but you lose money. <laughs> um, we so we did that tour with them in April, April, May of 2021. It was like the height of gas prices being as like the, yeah, as high yeah. as they've ever been, <laughs> like supply chain stuff, the like merch costs more. Like, I don't know if people like think about those things where it's like, I don't know. It's not, it's not great, <laughs> but right. it's fun. Yeah. And that's, you know, we all have full-time jobs. <laughs> so I don't, I'm happy to like lose the money so that I could like, you know, play with my favorite bands and meet a bunch of fans and play to new people and see Europe. But like that we still have jobs because it's like, that's just the reality of it. You know? Do you fantasize like someday this is going to be my only job? I used to, but like I said, I like took this time off and I'm like, oh, I don't do good with. Yeah, I, th I feel like when I have pressure to um, use my free time wisely, I use it better than if I like wake up and I'm like, what am I going to do today? And I mean, I don't know, maybe, it, you know, I don't know what the state of uh, the world will be five, ten years from now, but uh, just how it is right now. I'm chilling. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, maybe it'll maybe it'll change. Or, uh, I doubt it. Know. It seems like we're in a steady decline. <laughs> well, I mean, as a society, maybe, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe in five years, you'll be writing songs for like Olivia Rodrigo. Could see that. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Writing songs for other people? No, not really. I don't like my output is not that plentiful. <laughs> <laughs> like I you write a song, you're keeping it for yourself. That's kind of how, like, yeah, I like instead of write a ton, I usually my method is more like write like 14 and then pick the best 12 and make sure that those are like as good as possible. I mean, I think that's a common comment I see on like your videos and stuff like this band has never had a bad track. Two that's albums, nice. all great songs, like no filler. 
I, that's like a very nice compliment. <laughs> do you have any goals or things you still want to accomplish with the band? Like, what do you feel mm-hmm. is next? Um, Japan and Australia would be sweet. I'm very excited for this new record. I It'll come out at this this year at some point. I don't know when. We haven't had a discussion about it yet. Got to make some like new music videos and stuff for it. Yeah. Which is what I'm going to do with my next like two, three months here. Yeah, I don't know. I already, I already wrote a song for LP4. <laughs> oh, you're already working on the next record? This is also like, it's like still my hobby. So I was like playing guitar and I was like, oh, it's so weird. I like opened, I made the new file for LP4 lyrics. It was so weird to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Of course. The second artist I sat down with is Nashville songwriter Melody Walker. Some of Melody's earliest musical memories were of bluegrass music, since her dad was a bluegrass musician. Then as a teenager she was influenced by 90s alternative rock, everything from Tori Amos to Tool to Nine Inch Nails, and she was inspired by singer-songwriters like Jewel and Annie DeFranco to pick up a guitar and start writing songs. After college, she started a folky, bluegrassy group called Front Country that brought something fresh to Americana music. That band did a ton of touring and had billboard charting albums, but now are on an indefinite hiatus. But today, Melody is writing songs and collaborating with some of the biggest names in bluegrass and country music. And she's not afraid to speak her mind and to bring progressive politics into the world of Americana. Here is my interview with Melody Walker. So you're from Northern California originally, right? Yeah, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. How did you get into like bluegrass, country music, Americana growing up in San Francisco? Yeah, so my dad plays bluegrass music. He plays like mandolin and guitar and he used to jam with his buddies. They kind of had this this really cool electric and acoustic band project, which is funny. I'm just like totally walking in my dad's footsteps in that way because I'm such a across the board Americana artist, you know, doing electric stuff, acoustic stuff all the time. So I, I really, uh, trace my sort of roots in bluegrass music, uh, to a festival that I grew up going to called the strawberry music festival in California. That is a super eclectic festival. It would have everything from like traditional bluegrass and like, you know, Peter Rowan and Del McCurry and Lori Lewis and Kathy Callick were my California bluegrass heroes um, to, you know, rock bands that would play and, you know, have stuff like Little Feet and jammy stuff. They would have like the fleck tones and really progressive new acoustic and bluegrass stuff. So I was really exposed to a lot of those influences at a young age yeah. and it made a huge impact on me. And uh, to be able to grow up and play that same festival and a lot of other festivals that are really similar around the States and internationally has been so rewarding for me. It's like this full circle experience. It does feel like I'm part of like a tradition. Did your mom play music at all? My mom is a mega musical supporter. Let's put it that way. She doesn't like the other word that I sometimes use for how she met my dad, but <laughs> She's, she's a big fan of music, and they both um, brought me to so many concerts growing up. So when did you start writing your own music? You said you went through this sad girl piano phase. Was that when you were first writing songs, or was it even earlier than that? <laughs> I would say that I'm a sad piano girl at heart, because the very first song I ever wrote like on piano was like an instrumental when I was like six, maybe, that was in like C minor. 
it was just this little melody. Um, I believe it was called Burgundy Rain. That is some sad girl piano stuff. But my awakening as like a singer songwriter, I would attribute to when I was in middle school, that Jewel album, Pieces of You, came out. I had just been diagnosed with scoliosis and found out that I had to wear a back brace through middle school and into a little bit of high school, which is nice. a fun thing to learn as a middle middle school girl. Right. So that kind of sent me into a spiral of like learning guitar. Jewel made me want to learn acoustic guitar before that, like my dad played guitar. And so I wasn't that interested in it. I played piano, but then I decided it was time for me to learn guitar too, because I sort of always had a sense that I wanted to be a writer, but that seeing Jewel kind of gave me this template of like a way to be a female singer songwriter. I don't know. And then soon after Jewel, I got into Ani DeFranco, which is like a completely Uh different vibe, you know? And she was so inspiring for me just with like the, the bravado and how bold it is and loud and like polarizing too. Like at first I didn't like her voice. Um, And then it kind of grew on me because I saw it for the protests that it was. Yeah. So I, I started learning guitar but I was also, like I said, I was in like metal and punk and stuff. And so I was just learning whatever I could on electric and acoustic guitar. And I started trying to write songs. I mostly started yeah. learning a lot of songs at first, like learning just song, anything from the Beatles to like classic rock stuff up to like Jewel and Ani DeFranco. And then in kind of late middle school, early high school, I started trying to write my own songs and then i think my freshman year of high school i played an original song in front of the whole school at a talent show oh wow that was really pivotal for me because that song that song sucked you know (laughs) but everybody just had was like in awe of the fact that i had the balls to do it so i like had cred somehow like as a freshman in high school they're like wow that freshman just did that people had respect for it and I sort of, I guess I, I got bit by the bug and got addicted to uh, the validation. <laughs> but if I hadn't gotten that validation, yeah. I wonder what would have happened. Like I right. might have gone with what I kind of thought I might do, which was like law. A number of things had to happen, though. I was a, a music minor in school in uh, in college, but I was uh, majoring in poli sci at first. And I thought that I might do poli sci and then try to get into like, you know, law, like advocacy law of some kind. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was really into activism. Um, But luckily, the poli sci program just sucked at my school. And the professors that I was like staring down the barrel at were so awful and boring that I realized I was just going to be a music major because the music department was really cool. And that's where all my friends were. And it just kind of kind of sucked me in and then I got a general music degree and I just was a huge part of the like local music scene I went to school up in Humboldt County in California oh. stayed up there for several years and then came down to the bay and that's where I started playing more roots music again because I kind of mm-hmm. felt like I felt like that was where my roots were was in Americana and bluegrass music and so I started playing more of that music writing more of that music and started the band Front Country with a group of people and our band started getting some traction and we were able to tour and that allowed us to have um, a little bit of a a foothold in the industry, a little bit of a career. 
And then we moved to Nashville because it was much easier to tour out of Nashville. And Is it still going? I mean, you just put out an album in 2020, right? Yep. Yeah. That was, you could call that our swan song. Oh, okay. Um, we're, we're on indefinite hiatus is what I would say, but we had a really good run. It's just, there are winners and losers in this industry and you can have kind of a little cottage industry level career mm-hmm. as an indie artist, but unless something happens, it's not going to take you to any level of really security for your life and your livelihood and your health and all of that stuff. We couldn't get ahead past a certain point. We sort of hit a ceiling, you know, part of it might've been that we sort of were in the like bluegrass, progressive bluegrass Americana scene. We were a string band. Um, We did, we were about to get drums and be a more electrified indie folk kind of outfit for that Mm -hmm. final album that came out in the pandemic, but the pandemic just kind of lost all our momentum. And we all had just a lot of stuff we've been putting off for the last 10 years on the road. And we realized that we wanted to focus on our own individual musical efforts. And while that was kind of painful at the time, and there was a lot of grieving that needed to happen, and there was a lot of burnout to recover from, I'm so happy that it worked out that way. Because it opened up this whole different world of me being able to hang out in Nashville and write with people. And, you know, I ended up with songs on a Grammy winning record. Okay, so you moved to Nashville. What year was that that you relocated? Moved here in that auspicious year of 2016. It was an interesting year to move to a red state because uh, by November, that felt like a really bad idea. So I've been here since 2016 and was mostly gone. Pre-pandemic was mostly gone um, and not really here. Just in between tours, maybe mustering the ability to go out you know, one night and go to like our local bar, like go to D's country cocktail lounge, see all your friends, catch up, bitch about the road, you know, and then go back out, do some laundry, go back out. I mean, speaking of moving to a red state, I mean, your music is pretty like unabashedly political. And with front country, you had like the American dream song and, and stuff like that. The reckoning. Did you get flack for that? Was there pushback of like bluegrass band singing these uh, political songs? timing was just awful for releasing that record first of all we released it during the pandemic but we also released it in november of 2020 so it was you know the election and i think after that election and when you know trump was finally out and biden was in i think everyone just kind of wanted to take a beat and not be thinking about all that stuff but i'd written all those songs during that period of the trump administration and it's very obvious you know yeah so not exactly the most timeless thing so so you never got any, like, protesters at shows or people yelling anything at you? We we have been heckled a few times. Um, we did get banned from one, um, one venue, which I don't mind saying because um, I think they should be on blast for it. Um, oh. The Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a really cool venue, actually. Um, it's, it's like an ethnomusicology um, museum. It's private, though, and it's run by some conservative folks apparently (laughs) and we played 
right after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings oh. happened. Okay. So this was a dark time for many women, obviously. Um, oh. It was, I, I was like more angry than I have been in a long time about politics and like, believe me, I've had a lot of anger, but that was, that was an especially rough time, but I, I wasn't out of pocket or anything, by the way, on stage. I'm just saying that, like, I was definitely feeling it and going through it, though. Yeah. Um, but I was feeling the need to speak up for sure. And we happened to be playing in Arizona at the very moment, the very weekend, when Jeff Flake could have been the deciding vote that would say that, yeah, we need to, like, investigate this and look into it yeah. further. And so I felt like I needed to say something on stage and tell him to call Jeff Flake and let him know that they should investigate this. And, um, and it was right before a song called I see you that I had written that was directly about me too movement. And, um, it was just the intro for that song. Somebody yelled from the audience, vote to confirm. Oh God. Yeah. I didn't really, I, I didn't really talk back at him either. You know, I just let the song speak for itself, but, um, Apparently he complained or somebody complained, probably that guy. Uh, yeah. Um, and then the, yeah, the booker for the museum decided to uh, go with that and tell us that we wouldn't be invited back. Also, um, I had an experience in 2016, right before Trump got elected, we did our first tour of the UK, or maybe it was our second tour. But I remember us being over in the UK and being a bluegrass band. And I had pink hair at this time. People assuming that we were for Trump. That was really eye-opening for me, that it, it wasn't just apparent, you know, that these like white folks in a bluegrass band were like politically progressive at all. And I was like, okay, so we actually do need to say something and we need to make sure that we're, that we're using our privilege and standing up and saying things that might piss other white people off, you know, always tried to, to be reaching people, you know, saying things in a way that they could hear, you know, it wasn't just like screw all of you, you know? Yeah. It was just encouraging people to vote, encouraging people to be on the right side of history, um, yeah. to believe women, to support Black Lives Matter, all these things. Tried not to do it in too annoying of a way or a way that is alienating or just takes away from the music, you know? But yeah. at the same time, I don't have a lot of a lot of tolerance for people who think that politics and music shouldn't mix. Yeah, I do want to talk about writing with, uh, with other people. So you co-wrote four of the songs on Molly Tuttle's album, Crooked Tree, including the title track. How did you meet her? Like, how did that whole thing happen? So Molly and I both came out of the uh, California Bay Area bluegrass scene. Molly's about five years younger than me. So I've known her since she was a teenager. I think uh, we just had a mutual respect for years and years. And I don't know why she asked me to write with her for this record, but I'm so grateful 
that she did that because I was coming out of that front country release in the pandemic year that kind of didn't do much like a lot of records in 2020. I didn't know what I was doing next. I was like completely lost, just like unmotivated, existential crisis, all of that stuff, burnout. And Molly was like, hey, you want to write some like feminist California bluegrass songs with me for my next record? And I was like, you know what? That sounds great. It's not yeah. for me. I don't have to figure my stuff out. Um, it's for somebody else. And and that's like a cause that I'm passionate about too, because I don't think I would have written for just anything. It was like for Molly, yes. And yeah. for that cause of like like queering and, you know, feministing bluegrass music, like I'm so here for that. And that's something I'm very passionate about. Um, and so we we tried to write cool you know quirky meaningful songs for that record and i'm so proud of what we did i love the song crooked tree i'll play it my whole life every chance we get like yeah I'm, i mean it's such a beautiful I'm... metaphor how did you feel when it got nominated for grammys and you're like oh that's the album i worked on it was great um when it got nominated yeah i i thought since the moment that like we finished those songs and since she came out with the record last year I was like, this really could win a Grammy because it, it just was so good. She did such a great job. She picked such great players. And also her live band that she put together, Golden Highway, is so great. Um, and they've just been hitting it so hard all year. And the songs are so strong and the production's so strong. I just, I thought, you know, it stands a chance to to be nominated for a Grammy. She's got a good amount of industry support. A lot of people believe in her, especially here in Nashville. And... So when it was when it was nominated, I wasn't that surprised, but I still didn't know if it would win because it was up against, you know, there's always legacy acts in the bluegrass category. Yeah. She was up against Peter Rowan, who's a, an absolute legend. Um, and I'm so glad that the voters wanted that album to win. I mean, that was amazing. She won that, but she was also nominated for Best New Artist, right? She was, which um, right. that was another reason why I thought it might stand a chance of winning in the bluegrass Best Album category because she had that extra visibility of being in the big kids table, you know, right. yeah. the televised Grammys, the main categories. So that's huge. It's huge. Um, it's not often that any kind of bluegrass or roots artist or even Americana artist is in that category. So, yeah, I mean, it yeah. does, it does feel like there's kind of this Renaissance, like they're breaking into the mainstream a little bit. I mean, like Billy strings, I know is really big and, you know, has like a lot of crossover, and now Molly, does it feel that way that it's like there's more mainstream attention on it now? Yeah, there have been these waves over the years, you know, in the 70s, there was kind of a bluegrass revival. And then with the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack oh, yeah. in the early 2000s, that was a huge moment for bluegrass, Gillian Welch and Alison Krauss and stuff. And that that did a lot that actually like launched careers for a lot of people. You know, um, I think it's why my acoustic duo and then bluegrass band kind of was able to have a career. But what Billy Strings is doing right now for bluegrass and just for himself is amazing. Part of like what to, he took off on was that viral video of him in the basement playing uh, that song, Dust in a Baggy. That does seem to be one of the measures of success in 2023. Like, can you go viral? Did this go viral? Is that something you ever think about? Like, Oh, I've been think thinking about that for a decade now. Um, because, you know, bands, even bands like, um, Lake Street Dive had some really early viral video moments of them playing like unlikely places out in public. Right. 
on the side of the road on a playground, whatever. And they were sort of, you know, gambling on this video virality to try to have a thing. And that, that ultimately is what launched that band. And they're obviously an incredible band, but being an incredible band, having great songs, any of that stuff isn't worth much. If right. it falls in the forest, and nobody hears it. Right. So virality is like, that's the game. The whole music industry is obsessed with TikTok right now. That's all they care about. Right. So it's kind of funny that like, I've been able to build an audience on TikTok. You know, I, I, I have 30 times more followers at least on TikTok than I do on Instagram or Facebook. And it's just funny that like, that's what the music industry cares about right now. So virality is huge. Another artist that I have been writing with lately is my friend, Sierra Farrell. She lives up the street this way. Yeah. She's incredible. Her voice is like once in a generation kind of voice, you know, like an Adele level voice. It's like really special. And Sierra totally has her career based on a viral video from this uh, video series called Gems on VHS. She played her song Dreams. It went mega, mega, mega viral. And it kicked off her career. She got a a record deal. She's, you know, she just finished her making her second record, which um, a couple songs that we wrote together are going to be on it. Hopefully, but seems like seems like it's going to happen. And uh, and she just left on like a sold out, mostly sold out already tour of like really big clubs throughout the u.s so if you're out there and you can get tickets you should you should get tickets because then you can hear some songs that we wrote together do you think you'll get another grammy nominated album on your resume we'll see i don't want to i don't want to count any chickens but i think i think sierra absolutely could uh i think she could be up for a grammy for sure yeah you know everything has to fall into place right it's got to be like the right production and label and everyone's got to be like lobbying for it and all that stuff. It's it's as much political as anything. You made this great video talking about like the Grammy rules where you wrote on the album, but unless it's nominated in a certain category, you don't actually win the Grammy. Yep. So I, I get no statue for having co-written songs on a, a Grammy winning album. The only album category that all the songwriters and everybody gets statues for and gets Grammys for is album of the year, which is like, yeah the best in show of the Westminster right. Kennel Club of Music. You know what I mean? Um, so if you get best in show, then everybody gets a Grammy. But all the other categories for album, you know, rock album, bluegrass album, whatever it is, yeah. um, the songwriters are not recognized, which, you know, whatever. I'm not salty. Only a little. It's still cool. I mean, you've had all these kind of cool, like, you know, mainstream measures of success. Like, you know, you worked on this Grammy winning album. Went to like number two on the bluegrass charts, right? Yeah, we did. We charted on Billboard. It's not that hard to chart on smaller charts on Billboard. It really isn't. Or even bigger ones these days because it's kind of based on album sales. Streams have like a a ratio of how many streams equals an album. So it's not that hard to do, especially if you are somebody who has a grassroots following and actually does have fans. You can do things or you could at least until recently. That's just how the game So if you're not having those measures of success, don't feel too bad about yourself because people are probably playing dirty and have deeper pockets than you. Do you know who was number one that kept you at number two? Yeah, actually. And I am salty about this. Yeah, It was Miss Alice Krause. Okay, that hack, Alice Krause. (laughs) And, um, but the reason I'm salty is because it was for a jazz album that she put out. She put out this kind of like pop jazz album. Yeah. Called like, I think it was called like Windy City. 
Um, and it, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't bluegrass like in any way, shape or form, but you're kind of allowed to just like tick off whatever boxes anyway. you want yeah. for where you want your album to go. And, you know, Alison Krauss and her team know that the bluegrass album chart is shooting fish in a barrel for them. Crooked Tree only made it to number two as well because Dolly Parton thought with her recent album, Run Rose Run, you can't, can't beat be out Dolly. No. <laughs> but this was uh, super fun. Thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, sweet. Thanks. Hey, yeah. Bye. Lastly, I spoke with Alfred Banks, a rapper from New Orleans who, despite having a lot of mainstream success, still considers himself an underdog. Alfred originally started as a battle rapper, and then slowly but surely started making a name for himself with his energetic live performances and his thoughtful, personal lyrics. After years of touring and recording, in 2017 he released his breakthrough record, The Beautiful, a concept record that dealt with his older brother Orlandis, who struggled with schizophrenia and eventually died by suicide. Since that record, Alfred has released three more full-length albums, he's played festivals all over the country, he's played with and toured with artists like Miguel and Tank and the Bangas, and his music has been featured on TV and in movies. But still after all that, he says he's underrated. Here's my talk with Alfred Banks. So you're from New Orleans, born and raised? Or oh, uptown, man. Uptown New Orleans. Uh, 12 War to be exact, you know what I mean? Yeah, I love it here. I love it here. And uh, what was what was like your musical upbringing? Like, were your parents musical? Was it music? You know, you live in like one of the most musical cities in the country. Like, what were your early influences on? So when I was coming up, man, my mom uh, listened to a lot of R&B, soul, funk, and gospel. Mainly gospel. But whenever she wanted to listen to secular music, it was, uh, you know, we had this radio station. We have this. I don't know if it's still on, but... Uh, 98.5 WYLD and I played all of the like throwback stuff from like the 70s R&B and stuff like that and that's pretty much all I listened to like the first maybe seven eight years of my life and like gospel my mom had a lot of gospel VHS tapes and uh, <laughs> I got introduced to like Kirk Franklin and John P. Key and Hezekiah Walker Paul S. Morton uh, 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 the, like all the like the bigger uh you know, gospel acts and stuff. And um, that's all I listened to up until around like 98, 99. The first album I ever listened to, hip hop album was uh, a Busta Rhymes ELE, Extinction Level Event. Give Me Some More is what I remember to be the very first music video I ever saw. And so that's kind of, and then that's when my brothers kind of came in. My Alandis, my oldest brother and my little brother James, they both were uh, into music and Alandis was about to sign like kind of like a, uh, a deal with no limit he had like a little attention and so really? yeah i started getting yeah it, it fizzled out but it oh well, i should say it didn't pan out but he had like he was signed to like a local label here in new orleans doing some shows and putting out music this is like 98 so putting out music was a big deal um you know putting out vinyl and stuff and, and he had like a couple singles that he put out and uh so that and from there i got introduced to hip-hop uh outcast tupac Red Man, Busta Rhymes, uh, Eminem, and so forth and so on. Um, Hot Boys, obviously, Cash Money, No Limit, and shit like that. So that's kind of my upbringing. And when did when did you first start like writing raps? Around like nine. So what I would do is my brother would write his raps, and I would take those raps and rework the words, 
re-rap them to him. And like, it was just like, if he didn't know if it was his rap, then he'd be, I'd be like, oh yeah, I did it. But if he, if he recognized his rap, I'd be like, oh, I gotta go back and redo it. So that's kind of how I started writing around eight, nine years old. It was fun. It was such a, it was such a, that was really, it was really innocent, man. It was, it was dope. <laughs> you remember like, what are, what are some of the first stuff you were rhyming about? My brother had a rap. Was it? I gotta find myself before I find myself walking the earth day to day, walk, uh, being by myself. It was dope. I was like eight or nine, so like just rapping about stuff that I thought was interesting as a child. I guess like maybe I don't want to say video. I don't remember really any of that stuff. If I'm being honest, <laughs> but it, I'm sure it was innocent. So when did you first think like, okay, I actually want to do this, you know, for for a career? Like I want to be a rapper. This isn't just for fun. Um, so at first I wanted to be a basketball player. I don't like organization. I don't like being told what to do and I'm short. So that just wasn't going to happen. And then I wanted to be a WWE wrestler. Oh, nice. I just didn't want to put in the work. And as it pertains to like the type of lifestyle you'll have to be a wrestler. So I was like, nah. So then I wanted to rhyme. And around then, probably saw maybe freshman year in high school, sophomore year in high school. Uh, when Food and Liquor came out, Lupe Fiasco's Food and Liquor, uh, that's the album that really made, because like around before then, like pre-Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, 03, 04, I started getting a hinkering to kind of want to write raps like a little bit more seriously, but obviously as a kid, I don't yeah. have beat. So Orlando's taught me that if you don't have beats, just find a beat on an album that you like and try to battle the rapper on the record. Like listen to the beat and just write the rap to the beat. And so that's kind of how I started writing. But around like 14 years old was when Food and Liquor came out. And that album changed my life and it made me go, you know what? I want to do this for real. So around 14, yeah. 15, I decided I was going to really chase this as a, as a life. You know what I mean? Nice. And uh, tell me about the first name they used, uh, Lyrics to Lyricist. Oh, was that your first one? E. Willikers. Yes, it is. Um, I was Lyrics to Lyricist from 2008 to like 2015 and uh, that name for a while yeah i did i did i um man it was <laughs> you know i remember you know wanting a rap name and it was like uh what what should it be about or what's my rap name and, and i remember having a conversation with somebody and they were like yo your rap name should be a representation of who you are and what you like like who are you you know i like bars i like metaphors i guess lyrics and then like the lyricist just sounded cool because it was alliteration, you know, awful. And it just was too much to put on a flyer. <laughs> and I used to have blogs and I post my music because my name was like, they were blogs that hated my name so much they wouldn't post my music. It was a venue in New York. Uh, I got, I got booked to perform and the venue owner went online. I could find a screenshot somewhere. But he posted, like, there's an artist performing at my venue named Lyrics to Lyricist. You lose already with that whack-ass name. <laughs> no. I replied, and I was like, it's funny because you still have to pay me. So I was like, you know what, man? I got older, and I realized, you know, I want to start rapping about more personal things and kind of going across the board with my with my music selection and what I put out. <laughs> and a name like Lyrics kind of puts me in a box. So I was like, yo, what's another name I could do? I was like, you know what? I'm going to just go with my real name. Ironically, in, the, in like, my old neighborhood, um, nobody calls me Alfred or Banks or anything. They call me Lupe. Like, cause back in the day when I was rhyming, when I was coming up, you know, this is 06, 07, the hottest rappers out were like them franchise boys, Lil Wayne, Jeezy and stuff like that. So it was more street yeah. stuff. 
And so I was the only one rapping the way I was rapping. And at that time, the only guy who was rapping like that was Lupe Fiasco. So right. he called me Lupe. So, like, you know, I, I go by a couple of different names nowadays for sure. Um, I want to ask you about this story about when you were when you were young, like 17, you uh, met g Easy and challenged him to a rap battle outside of a library. So, yeah, I had, uh, so to set the to set the table, um, set the stage. I met a guy, I don't remember his name, but as I was kind of like graduating high school, I did my very first show and I met a guy at that show and he was like, yo, or around that time at least. He's like, yeah, man, this is dude that's going to, you know, you're going to Loyola, there's this guy, you should look him up. Uh, his name is g Easy. he got a little buzz right now. I was like, all right, word. And the way I was, I was like, well, I want to battle. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> up. And I'll never forget, we were in front of the Dana Center right across from uh, the uh, the library. And I was like, yo, my man said, you g Easy," And he was like, yeah. And I was like, spit something. He was like, yeah, nah, I don't really want to spit nothing, man. And I just started rapping at him. Hey, yo, I come through with the bars. And he was just like, uh, <laughs> that was cool, man. He just kind of like walked off and shit. So, yeah. <laughs> You're hungry. You're hungry. Definitely, man. Very, very, in retrospect, it's like, dude, come on. But <laughs> at the time, <laughs> That's that's how I used to battle rap on campus. So I was a battle rapper for like a freestyle battle rapper. And, yeah, uh, I used to battle. I remember I had a rap battle in the library, which is which is just a complete antithesis of what that place is about, you know. And like, I, I, yeah, that's just how I got down. If you said you rhymed, you said you was nice. I was gonna prove you were wrong. That's kind of how I was. You know what I mean? Calm down a little bit though. So when do you start moving into like a recording artist? Because I know now you have like you have four full length albums, mm -hmm. bunch of singles. Uh, I started recording around like 20, 2009. I put out my very first project, 20, 2009. It's a project called Blueology, a little mixtape. Uh, I recorded it on a PC laptop. I recorded it with Audacity and uh, right. a small microphone inside my closet. And I had the, um, the little hanger with the pantyhose in front of the little snowball, like the whole, the whole shebang. Very expensive setup. <laughs> dope man like I, I i'm so grateful for those for that energy and 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 for that that time you know i was very hungry and i just kind of wanted to i don't know just be seen and just be heard it was dope so 2000 2009 is when i started recording and kind of went on from there i was gonna ask too you were talking about like performing live you're like that's amazing live performer like that's a big part of what you do and i see yeah. you playing festivals and you you're you're headed to a show you know tomorrow how did that happen? Did, like, did you find you were just, like, naturally good on stage, or did you have to work at it? Like, how did the live stuff come into your, your repertoire? It was actually both, man. I kind of felt natural because in high school, I used to do, like, improv. And we, like, created an improv situation because there wasn't, like, a thing. I, I didn't go to a high school that, like, had improv as, like, a thing you could do. We kind of created the idea. It was me and three other guys who were super creative. And we are just all funny, good writer kind of guys. and funny and stuff like that and we were just creative and and one day for like an English class we decided to write like a story instead of do a paper we asked the teacher could we do like a like a story and could we act it out and he was like well if you can do it well then yeah I'll let you do it and I'll grade you on it accordingly and that was like the first time I ever performed in front of a group of people was at a pep rally at my high school for like you know seven eight hundred kids and stuff right. and that was like 15 16 16 something like that and that was like my, and, and as scared as I was, it felt natural somehow. You know what I mean? Like I was completely like, I was scared shitless. 
but it was like I I need to be up here. This feeling, this adrenaline, like that. I just feel like this is what I'm supposed to do, you know. And I would kind of rap at poetry things that the school would have. Any after school programs that I could get in front of people and rap, I would do that. And then like 2009 to 2010, I just was like, it just hit me for some reason. I don't have money. I don't have a budget. I don't have an investor. I don't have a big cosign or anything. The only way I'm going to get this music out is if I perform it. Perform it. I I guess I got to be good at it. And so it just kind of like instinctually kicked in. Like, okay, how do I get better at live performances? And and early on, my performance sucked. But like I kind of, over time, it got better because when I say sucked, I mean like my energy wasn't really great. Like I've always rapped good. Like I never rapped over my vocals or anything like that. But like it was it was the the actual, the, the crowd to artist kind of relationship. I had to perfect that. You know what I mean? I don't know, man. Just over time, I just enjoy it. I enjoyed it so much. I just wanted to do it all the time. And, and it's the best way to prove how far ahead you are of other people. And uh, I'm a very competitive guy. Uh, not as bad as I used to be. I'm very, I'm way more chill nowadays. Like I'm still very competitive. If I'm around somebody who I think is better than me, it makes me step my game up to one day best them. But respectfully, not like literally, but just like want to be the best. And so that competitive aspect, the success you see when you perform really well and, and the and immediate gratification it, it brings you. And the fact that I said, I make a little money because I sell merch at the time. I just sold merch, make a little twenty, thirty dollars. Like, okay, cool. And I was, was too. So like when I would sell a couple bucks, sell a couple bucks in merch, I'd be able to eat that night or I'd be able to, you know what I'm saying, go what, do whatever I was going to do. So there was a lot of payoff for it. You know what I mean? And so I, I really jumped into the performance thing really, really early. And throughout the years, these past 14 years, it's just been, that's been my calling card and my bread and butter. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like from the modern stories I have done, it seems like a lot of like modern rappers is I recorded it. I put it up on SoundCloud. I wait for people to hear my music on the internet. It's not like I go out there and play shows, which is seems like that's more like a rock and roll band type approach to it. I listen to a lot of the stories that you talk about. And obviously it's from different time frames and stuff. Even when you did something about like Juice World or like The Weeknd, the idea that I put out a song and people hear it and then that's what changes my life is something that I've just never considered. I don't understand. Oh. That shit will never happen for me. So I <laughs> have to go out and work it. That's just kind of been my whole thing. I don't, I've been a guy that like, there've been a couple instances in my life where I've been discovered, right? But for the most part, the, the, way, the reason or the way that I've been able to sustain my life and to further my name is by kicking ass. I don't I don't have the luxury of just creating music, putting it out and hoping for the best because my life ain't set up that way, right? So I have to kick everybody's ass and that's how I make my my living. I mean, yeah, I think the uh, you know, the weekends of the world are few and far between. So I think a lot of people just, you know, give up. They're like, "Well, I put my song on SoundCloud and I wasn't discovered overnight, so that's it." Like if I think for most people you got to get out there and work and put in the grind. It's also about the love of it, because if I did this for the money, 100% for the bread, I'd have quit about like about eight years ago. You know what I mean? Because you just don't make any bread from this shit, like talking about it, until you start making bread from it, you know? Right. I did it because I truly love performing. I love creating music. I like rapping. It's my favorite thing to do. You know what I mean? I don't have kids. I don't have a family like that, like a wife, kids, anything like that my parents and stuff but like all i have is my music you know what i mean and and, and i put my everything into it because i truly love this thing i love hip-hop it's the most influential strong lucrative culture on the planet you know what i mean and 
and I love it. And I love being a part of it. And I love like, I just really love this shit. And so outside of all the accolades, outside of all the accomplishments and the money and all the stuff that I've made and done, I'd love rap. So I would do this shit if I didn't make bread because for the first six years of my career, I didn't make any, you know what I mean? I love yeah. what I do. I truly take this shit very serious. Like I'm, I'm very anal when it comes to music, man. Cause like it's, it's serious. It's, it's a, it's a way of life. It's a walk of life. And I, I just don't take it for granted. I want yeah. to ask you about this side project that you're doing, or I don't know if it's a side project, but this duo sax was sax kicks Ave. So Is fucking that- happy you asked me about that. Oh my God. Yes. So sax it's kicks you. Ave. And it's the saxophone player from Tank and the Bangas. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Yes. So how did that come together? So in 2018, 2019, I toured with Tank and the Bangas a bunch. We toured Canada, Southwest, the East Coast, so forth and so on. We did about 50 shows together. Doing all that touring, I got really cool with the band, you know, Norm and Josh and Tank and all, and all the guys, but, but Danny and, and, and all the guys. But I really got cool with Albert because mm-hmm. I think Albert, closer to my age and we both had like the same kind of like sense of humor oh, that's pretty cool but i'm not the most social guy so i just kind of did that and just kind of went on my business and our manager tavia who manages tanking the bangers and me she was like yo we need to, y'all should get in the studio because albert makes beats and i was like all right cool just email me some shit man i'll write something come in record it and go about my business that's kind of how i did everything and i got in the studio with albert and we were in the studio for like six hours and uh four hours were, was us just laughing and cracking jokes. And I was like, man, I've never had this type of musical connection with somebody. I've never had this, like, just instantly we're just, like, cool. And, and he's a Larry. I was like, yo, this dude is dope as hell. So we did the one record. And uh, he was like, hey, man, you want to do some more? I was like, yeah. He sent me another folder of beats. And I wrote, like, two or three joints. Had some ideas for some stuff. And we started putting it down. And he was like, yo, this is really cool. I was like, yeah, you, you want to make this a thing, dude? He was like, yeah, why not? And it's COVID. Right in the midst of the pandemic, 2020. We started in 2019. I was like, shit, we got nothing else to do, man. Everybody at the house, might will create. And so we started making some stuff. And we came up with the name Sax Kicks Ave because he plays sax. I really love kicks and we both live on streets. It has just been so beautiful. I've been able to experiment with some of the things that's been in the back of my head, music-wise, that I've always wanted to do, like dance music and hyper-pop. We have a song. Uh, called Too Much with, uh, it's actually a solo record, but I credit it Sax Kicks Ave because he made the beat. And it's, uh, Sax Kicks Ave featuring Weedus. No, you about to flip like when you open the sidekick, but I'm just big and nine. I'm thinking you're sublime, and we would be your item if I was in my prime. But I need to be alone and just focus on my grind until things change. I'll see you another time. It's too much, it's too much, it's too much. I don't want to get too heavy, but I just know that like a big part of your music and what you you know rap about is like mental health awareness. You know, you you lost a brother unfortunately to yeah. to some stuff, and just kind of how that's influenced your music and why you think that's important to to talk about. Yeah, man. Honestly, dude, like my introduction to mental health and the entire uh, the idea of it was because of my brother. Um, you know, he suffered from uh, schizophrenia and he died by suicide. And I had no idea what schizophrenia was. I had never even heard of that word. Uh, coming from the family I come from, you know, we prayed away, you know, you, you just work through it kind of deal, you know. And not even just the family, just being being black, like that just isn't a topic. We don't talk about that. We just move through it. And so my brother passed. I just did a lot of research kind of wanting to know what he was going through. 
and do that research, I realized what mental health is and what the phrase means and mental health awareness. And I also realized like millions of people suffer from some form of mental health issues to whatever degree, PTSD, to anxiety, to schizophrenia, to bipolar disorder, to depression, so forth and so on. I also realized, you know, some of my uh, diagnosis, uh, being bipolar and, and suffering depression. And I just did so much research and I was like, man, I didn't know so many people suffer from this stuff. And in a selfish way, I, I really wanted everyone in the world to know who my brother was because he was such a great guy and he was an aspiring yeah. rapper and incredible writer. And I wanted, and he was just a good person, all around good guy. Um, that I just wanted everybody to know his name. And I had a little platform. So I was like, yo, let me start. I, I want to do an album about him. Um, and so that's kind of what we did. I, I, the beautiful, which is to this day, like my biggest record. So who am I? I'm just a guy that really tries to set aside the fact there's only a few people that believe in the drop. I can't say that because all my supporters are right by my side. But my biggest supporter, he ain't even alive. My older brother. So Landis, thank you for all you did. Sending me cash and putting that studio in my crib. Looking up at the sky because you are my inspiration. We'll see each other again. I just got to learn patience. People just like gravitated to that. And I didn't realize how much of an impact it would have on people. It's the album that truly made my fan base and, and got people on board with what I do because up until then, I didn't really make music like that. I was just rapping to rap and stuff. And mm-hmm. I would get deep every now and again, but for the most part, it was just how good I rap. But that album is is the deep, the most, the most honest thing that I've ever done. And you could feel the pain because I was still grieving my brother, you know what I mean? And, and and uh, in the album, I kind of battle schizophrenia as well. I develop it and stuff. So it's like this concept record. But like, it is real for me because I go through it and I know people who do. And now more than ever, it's becoming more of a topic we speak on. But there's still a little bit of a stigma there. And like, I, I, yeah. I want to just do my part to kind of break that down as best as possible, as much as possible. And let people know you can be cool, you can be successful and still have issues. And that doesn't make you any less human or any less whatever. So it's kind of normalizing it and, and doing my little part to kind of just raise awareness because it's just important to me. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I love that you have something to say and that, you know, you have these, you know, like lyrics that, um, that really mean something. And I think that's why you're connecting with people for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a blessing. How do you define success in 2023? You have albums, you have your music out, you had a song uh, in a movie, like all things that like, I don't make music, but you know, if I did, I'd be like, Oh my God, like this is a huge accomplishment. Like my songs in a movie, I've made it. But like, what do you consider making it in 2023? Honestly, man, I made it the moment that I became a full-time musician. Um, And it was because of COVID, you know, uh, pretty much from 2009 to 2019. First 10 years of my career, I literally, I was a semi-professional rapper. I had a day job. So when I did Voodoo Fest, opening for Miguel and Kendrick and stuff, I clocked on at my job the next day. You know, when I did these festivals across the United States, I would fly back and clock on at my day job. You know, when I did my Volkswagen, I'm the only rapper from New Orleans with a Volkswagen commercial. Flew out to Spain, filmed it for a week in the Volkswagen factory. And then when I flew back, I clocked on at my job. You know what I mean? But the moment that I became a full-time musician, I did it. This is my dream. This is all I ever wanted. And... I'm that that's the moment I was like, yeah, I did it. Finally did it. Now that ain't the end. It's just the base. Now I find I've, I graduated high school. Now I'm in college. <laughs> All right, cool. Now I'm trying to get that, that, that degree. And so that for me is success. And the Volkswagen commercial, I have my song in movies. I did a Nickelodeon spot uh, last year and 
I did a song for this commercial for this uh, brand called Wavely, uh, like a job finding kind of service. And it was my first, you know, national television commercial and stuff. Like that type of thing. Those are, those are things that let me know that I am successful because yeah. it used to be a hundred percent. I had to reach out to people to get things taken care of. If there's anything I was interested in, I had to initiate the conversation. Now it's about 60%. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> people reach out to me now, uh, you know, for this Phoenix show, all things are taken care of flight, hotel, nice check. You know, these are the type of things that let me know that like, okay, I'm on the right track. I may not be super famous and I may not be big, but I take care of my family. I make good money. You know, my rent is paid every month. You know, I get to buy all the shoes I want and I'm pretty successful, man. And, you know, there's always, you know, they say reach for the stars. And, you know, one day I love to be Drake financially or whatever the case, but if I never get famous or never get super de duper rich, man, I get to do what I love for a living. And I do pretty well. And uh, people know me. People come out to my shows whether the crowds are small or they're a little bit bigger, whatever the case, there's, there's a bunch of people across the world that have me as a favorite rapper. And that means more to me than any check or any accomplishment, you know? So I'm successful. I think it's as in 2023, I, I feel like I'm a pretty successful rapper. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this and uh, have a good show in Phoenix. For sure. Man. I appreciate it. you. Be safe. Huh? All right. Thanks, man. one more for good measure. In talking to these three very different artists, I found that they had a lot in common. One thing I wasn't expecting was how all three were so impacted by COVID-19. Whether it was a record being delayed, a record not doing as well as maybe it would have otherwise, or the pandemic affecting their personal lives in ways that shaped their professional ones. It's been three years now of the pandemic. I always think of the night when I realized that the pandemic was serious was when they shut down the NBA. My wife had actually already been trying to warn me before that, telling me that we should be quarantining. But the night they shut down the NBA, I was at a place called Carol's Pub in Chicago, and I was with my friend singing Tom Petty karaoke. It's actually a miracle that I didn't get COVID that night. Although, ironically, I got COVID last week, so doing all three of these interviews, I actually had COVID. I had to edit out a lot of my own coughing. But kind of funny that I had COVID while I'm talking to people about how much COVID affected their careers. Some words said in passing, the entire world crashing down again. You think that it's over, but then it goes on and on and on. Thank you so much to my guests today, Deanna, Melody, and Alfred. It was really a pleasure talking to all three of them. Please go support them, buy their records, buy their merchandise. They're all three fantastic artists. Speaking of fantastic artists, thank you to Brian Ishiba, as always, for doing the theme song to this podcast. And thank you so much to my patrons on Patreon. Ian, Michael, Stephen, Elizabeth, Erica, Nathan, Blair, Patricia, Stuart, Testube Waltz, Rebecca, Nia, and Stephanie. Thank you all so much for the support. I really appreciate it. And if you're not already, please go subscribe to me on Patreon. There are some exclusive videos up there now. Thank you, everybody, and I'll see you next week.